Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate AudioCast newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 12, issue number 51, which happens to correspond with the week of December 5th, 2022. Free thoughts this week. Minerals are keys to unlocking the beneficial actions of enzymes. Knowing where you are getting your mineral and vitamins as cofactors is really, really important at all ages. In this issue, we're going to go over some COVID quick hits, more information around COVID, magnesium, and then also recipe. Coronavirus update number 76. So the work around COVID research is starting to fade for me. There's not too much out there anymore that I'm really seeing anything worthy of putting out a newsletter every other week based on it, but there will be some little tidbits dropped here and there as the information rolls out. This is now mostly a highly contagious upper respiratory infection for most people. The morbidity has faded to a level where we are seeing very limited disease in children and the hospital data remains completely plateaued. Unless there's a dramatic shift in this virus, we are moving toward a world where COVID will be like the other four circulating coronaviruses for most of the United States population, with the exception of those with high-risk issues. As always, it behooves everyone to take care of themselves from a lifestyle perspective so that their immune solvency is so good that this virus does not have the chance to give them any suffering at all. The new Omicron strains, as of the December 3rd data note, a slight change from BA4.6 is only now 2%, BA2.75 is only 1%, BF.7 now has around a 6% share, BA.5 has dropped down to 14%, and now we have BQ.1 at 31% and BQ1.1 at 32%. A couple new strains, XBB and BN.1, are at 6 and 5% respectively. So the new world of Omicron is a constant deck chair shuffle regarding which strains hold court and for how long. It appears that every few months, a new strain will be able to take over the chairs on the deck and the shuffle will continue. None of the variants of concern are showing any sign of increased disease morbidity, which is the key moving forward. Quick hits number one. NeuroCOVID is a real and frustrating reality for the adult medicine world. In a recent study by Dr. Hitter, H-I-T-T-E-R, we find, quote, the most prominent signs of severe NeuroCOVID are blood-brain barrier impairment, elevated microglial activation markers, and a polyclonal B cell response targeting self-antigens and non-self-antigens. COVID-19 patients show decreased regional brain volumes associating with specific CSF parameters. However, COVID-19 patients characterized by plat plasma cytokine storm are presenting with a non-inflammatory CSF profile. Post-acute COVID-19 syndrome strongly associates with a distinctive set of CSF and plasma mediators. Collectively, we identify several potentially actionable targets to prevent or intervene with neurological consequences of SARS-CoV-2 infection. End quote. This comes to us from Sutter et al. 2022. So what we are learning is that if and when the brain's protective barrier integrity is perforated, antibodies and pro-inflammatory molecules get into conserved and safe spaces wreaking havoc. The cells that are damaged lead to the symptoms of post-acute uh, COVID syndrome. The microglial cells in the brain, which are resident immune macrophages to kill pathogens, get overactivated and begin to target our tissue, which is not good. Keeping the blood-brain barrier intact remains the key moving forward. But how do we do that? 
The blood-brain barrier remains minimally understood as to how it is so impermeable to most microbes and xenobiotics, but remains capable of actively transporting micro and macro nutrients across for brain metabolism. The blood-brain barrier has the ability to actively pump toxins and chemicals out of the brain, almost like it is a one-way filter and protection barrier. The brain is an immune-privileged site because it has minimal volumes of white blood cells called neutrophils compared to other tissues in the body and that the blood-brain barrier keeps most immune cells out. Under normal conditions, mononuclear white blood cells enter the brain during embryonic development and become resident microglia. Unfortunately, as discussed above, in inflammatory disease conditions, the blood-brain barrier endothelial cells may be disrupted and leak molecules across and into the brain. This is the result of immune cell signaling cytokines and other pro-inflammatory agents released during an infection or injury. This is the beginning stage of the problems that we see in neuro-COVID. Many neurological diseases are associated with increased blood-brain permeability, such as hypertension, dementia, epilepsy, infection, multiple sclerosis, and trauma. Any disorder which affects blood-brain barrier function will cause secondary effects on cerebral blood flow and vascular tone, further influencing transport across the blood-brain barrier. This comes to us from Kadri, K-A-D-R-Y, et al. 2020. All of these conditions can predispose someone to neuro-COVID. Future understanding of the modulation of the inflammatory cascade, including ni nitric oxide, reactive oxygen species, cytokines and chemokines, and blood-brain barrier reinforcement is the key to disease mitigation. In all, the key remains to avoid the upstream triggers of systemic and intracranial inflammation. Number two, more on neurocovid. This study found similar blood-brain barrier permeability, similar activation of the resident microglial cells in the brain, but also exhausted T cells from repeated stimulation. Etter et al. 2022, E-T-T-E-R. This is the hallmark of a poor viral killing capacity at the earliest stages of illness. These patients get hit hard and fast with SARS-2 leading to this overblown late response and massive activation of the immune system in the brain. This activation leads to lots of self-tissue damage noted by the autoantibody attack, but also brain volume loss and postmortem analyses. Keeping the antiviral killing capacity fully functional pre-infection is the key. It is well laid out in this piece. You can get a link to the piece in the newsletter. Number three, COVID pandemic caused a massive doubling of resistant bacterial superbugs. Quote, data showed that in Europe last year, reported cases of Acetobacter bacteria group more than doubled compared with the pre-pandemic annual numbers. Cases of another bacteria, Klebsiella pneumoniae, which is resistant to last resort antibiotics, jumped by 31% in 2020 and 20% 20 in 2021. Fick M. et al. 2022. We saw similar issues during the 80s and 90s during the AIDS epidemic. Weakened immune systems are prone to opportunistic infections or traditional pathogenic bacteria, leading to exceptional amounts of antibiotic use. The frequency increases in these hosts because AIDS is a lifelong disease until death. The frequency drives the meeting place of bacteria and antimicrobials, allowing for bacteria to gain mutations, leading to resistance and treatment inadequacy. COVID led to similar issues as the immune systems in the hospitalized individuals were not well-functioning, leading to an AIDS-like problem of resistance. Why is this so important? These resistant superbugs can enter the hospital and infect average ill hosts, leading to many premature deaths. The only way to stem these tides is to 
only use the medications when absolutely necessary and develop new medicines that get a leg up on resistance. This unfortunately is not happening very often anymore. Number four, human TH17 cells disrupt the blood-brain barrier. These are T cells that push the immune system against extracellular pathogens, but also mediate autoimmune diseases. Serum levels of IL-17 and IL-22 are the blood markers that rise. The studies showed that these cytokines disrupt the tight junctions of the brain, blood-brain barrier, leading to inflammatory damage of the brain. This comes to us from Kebir, K-E-B-I-R, at all 2007. Some non-COVID research. Number five, marijuana smokers end up having more lung disease than cigarette smokers, which are both clearly much worse than abstinence. From the study, quote, a total of 56 marijuana smokers, 34 male, 57 non-smoker control patients, 32 male, and 33 tobacco-only smokers, 18 male, were evaluated. Higher rates of emphysema were seen among the marijuana smokers, 75%, than non-smokers, 5%, but not tobacco-only smokers at 67%. Rates of bronchial thickening, bronchiectasis, and mucoid impaction were higher among marijuana smokers compared to the other groups. Gynecomastia was more common in marijuana smokers, 38% more in, than in the control groups, and 16%, and tobacco-only smokers only at 11%. An age-matched subgroup analysis of 30 marijuana smokers and 29 non-smoker control patients and 33 tobacco-only smokers, rates of bronchial thickening, bronchiectasis, and mucoid impaction were again higher in the marijuana smokers than in tobacco-only smokers. Emphysema rates were also higher in age-matched marijuana smokers at the 93% than in tobacco-only smokers, 67%. End quote. That comes to us from Mirtha et al., 2022. This is a bit of a surprise to me as cigarette smokers are on average smoking more cigarettes per day than a THC or marijuana smoker, leading to more particulate matter inflaming the lung tissue. However, marijuana is now more commonly smoked than cigarettes by good margin as, Amer as Americans believe that these chemicals are safer for the body than cigarettes and have medical benefits that outweigh the cancer or lung damage risk. This study will begin to shine a light on the reality that anything incinerated and inhaled will trigger inflammation and damage over time with the current chronic use in the lungs. This is another wake-up call for humans to be careful when inhaling smoke products. Number six, tiny molecules in breast milk are now being shown to prevent allergies in offspring. Cutting-edge research is teaching us that microRNAs microribonucleic acids, which are transferable information of building blocks of proteins, those microRNAs are being used as gene influencers in infants that are breastfed. MicroRNAs are a whole new area of study throughout medicine. Remember that DNA is our book of life within a cell's nucleus, and RNA is used to transfer coded information to make proteins. In 1993, microRNAs were discovered to be a non-coding information transmitting molecule in the body. In the current study by Hicks and colleagues at Penn State School of Medicine, we see that maternal breast milk has thousands of mRNAs within it and that four of them are now being determined to signal proper immune tolerance in infants with regards to allergy sensitization. What did the study say? 41 or 25% of the studied infants developed eczema, 33 or 20% developed food allergy, and 10 or 6% had wheezing or the precursor to asthma. The not affected infants consumed greater volumes of microRNA, otherwise known as MIR375, in their mother's breast milk. The study noted that the levels of this microRNA released 
increase throughout lactation. Mothers with a low body mass index tended to have higher concentrations of microRNA-375. That comes from Hicks et al. 2022. This is yet another in a massive line of evidence for why we should be pushing breastfeeding at every level. The cost of formula coupled to the cost of disease not only makes this a child-centric issue but also an economic issue. The state and federal governments are going into massive debt on disease spending in United States healthcare. We as a society should be pushing for every disease-sparing measure known to man at this point. We have to shun the reality that discussing breastfeeding truths is a potentially shaming event for a mother. It is categorically not. It is the most important health decision that a mother has and can make for her loved one. Section 2. Magnesium. A major cofactor in over 300 enzymatic reactions in the body. It is necessary in adequate levels for energy production, insulin function, protein synthesis, and blood pressure regulation, and muscle nerve function. That is every major system in the body. Oh, and by the way, you need it to make and protect DNA and RNA and glutathione, my personal favorite, detoxification mechanism. Magnesium is located about half in our bones and other half in our tissues. Our blood has less than 1%. Our kidneys keep the blood level in magnesium under tight control. Quote, However, recent reports estimate that at least 60% of Americans do not consume the recommended daily amount of magnesium. Part of the problem stems from the soil used for agriculture, which is becoming increasingly deficient in essential minerals. Over the last 60 years, the magnesium content in fruit and vegetables decreased by 20 to 30%. Moreover, the Western diet contains more refined grains and processed food. Estimates are that 80 to 90% of magnesium is lost during food processing. As a result, a significant number of people are magnesium deficient, which may comprise up to 60% of critically ill patients. Magnesium deficiency is commonly determined by measuring total serum magnesium concentrations, which range from 0.7 to 1.05 micromoles in a healthy person. However, serum magnesium levels reflect only 1% of the body's magnesium content, since most of the body's magnesium is stored in bone, muscle, and soft tissues. Therefore, although serum values are within the normal range, the body can be in severely magnesium-depleted state. Consequently, the clinical impact of magnesium deficiency may be largely underestimated, end quote. Debaji et al., D-E-B-A-A-I-J et al., 2015. Frankly, the clinical benefit of magnesium in children has been profound in our clinic. So we know that it is obvious that this mineral is insanely important to us. Where can we get it? The best healthy source of magnesium are spinach, nuts, beans, oatmeal, avocado, soy, potato, and banana. Fish, chicken, and beef have reasonable amounts as well. Epsom salts can be placed in bathtubs, and supplements are also a major human source of intake and exposure these days. Insufficiency and deficiency occur primarily in people with gastrointestinal disorders like Crohn's disease, also colitis, alcoholics, type 2 diabetics, and people with just a general poor quality diet. Medicines like antacid, proton pump inhibitors, certain antibiotics and diuretics can lower magnesium levels as well. Magnesium deficiency causes problems with blood pressure control and heart function. Osteoporosis is a long-term consequence of chronic magnesium insufficiency. Migraine headaches are associated with low magnesium levels. Diabetics lose more magnesium in their urine because of elevated blood sugar levels. A low magnesium, in turn, worsens insulin sensitivity. So it's a cycle. It's a loop. Not good. We use magnesium frequently in the emergency room setting, and you can save someone's life with it based on a cardiac arrhythmia or an asthma attack. 
Insufficiency is also a problem for neurologic function. Low magnesium levels are associated with increasing anxiety, insomnia, constipation, attention deficit disorder, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue, and a laundry list of other issues. Low magnesium in the face of reactive oxygen species, elevations from exercise, infections, chemical exposure, and more could lead to DNA and RNA damage. This leads to premature senescence, early aging, and age-related diseases. In order to absorb magnesium well, you need vitamin D and B6, as well as selenium and amino acid taurine. This, of course, happens naturally when we eat lots of vegetables, fruits, and get sun exposure naturally. So, in all, if you feel mentally or physically tight, you are probably low in magnesium. Load up on nuts, organic spinach, salmon, organic soy, and beans. Get out in the sun for 20 minutes minimal every day without sunscreen. And if that doesn't cut it, get some magnesium supplements like magnesium taurate or glycinate. Or you could use citrate, but the citrate has the side effect of a little bit of diarrhea if you get too much, which could actually be a benefit if you're constipated. Either way, get involved and learn about magnesium and where you need it or not get, and, um, maybe not getting it and find out how to get more into your diet or take supplements. Section three, recipe of the week. Butter lettuce salad, a favorite of mine from a local restaurant called The Pickled Peach. Here's a variation on it from The Modern Proper. It's loaded with good fats, iron, folate, and manganese. Personally, I would add a little bit of smoked salmon or salami for protein. That will help me reach my 30 gram threshold for muscle synthesis per meal. The link is in the newsletter. Go get it. So that's it for this week. Song of the week is Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. One of my favorites from the old days. Remember taking bus trips up to northern New York and Vermont for skiing when I was a little kid in the teenage years listening to this song. Great, great stuff. Well, that's all for this week. Hug those kids as always. Have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this audiocast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional. It's not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.